0: Hello, my name is Rose Ward and you are listening to Red Flag Radio, the podcast of Red Flag Newspaper and broadcasting here out of Melbourne, Australia on land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And on the show today, talking about union politics and struggles, I would also like to acknowledge that the biggest case of wage theft that we've ever experienced in this country, or not me, but Indigenous people experienced the biggest um, wage theft in the history of this land uh, that has never been um, repaid and reparations are due So Red Flag Radio is a revolutionary socialist podcast if you haven't listened before. Hopefully if you have, you get the general gist. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, We discuss politics, history, theory and activism with people who are participants in the struggle. And when we talk about struggle on the show, we're talking about fighting for a different world to get rid of capitalism and to save the planet from um, total destruction. And right now in Sydney... Our comrades and friends um, up there are currently, I think, probably still in the middle of a protest Mm. against um, the absolute abysmal lack of response from the Liberal government and from the Labor opposition to the um, mass poisoning, basically, that's going on in Sydney and all across Australia and many parts of Australia of bushfire smoke that has really kind of confounded people, I think, not just politically, but just in going about their everyday life. Uh, yeah. So solidarity with the people who are protesting um, in Sydney and we hope to hear more about that on the show soon. So joined today, I am, that's my Yoda impression. <laughs> <laughs> I am joined today by Liam Ward, um, who's the producer of this show, who's a socialist activist and filmmaker and long-time Hi. unionist in my union the National Tertiary Education Union, and by Jerem Small, who's our special guest, who's the industrial organiser for Socialist Alternative, and someone who's seen his fair share of picket lines, having worked in construction and been part of the construction union, the CFMEU, um, currently one of the more active and militant unions here in Australia. Jerem is also a regular contributor to Red Flag newspaper, and in the latest edition of Red Flag, which is the summer edition, if you haven't already got hold of a copy Or subscribe to the newspaper, you should. There's a very special poster that's a free giveaway with the summer edition that's designed by Nikki, Nikki Minus, who um, is uh, around the left. It's a beautiful poster that you can get free in your copy of Red Flag, so do make the most of that. Okay, Jerem, welcome to Red Flag Radio. Cheers,
1: Rose. Great to be here. Hi, Liam. How are you doing?
0: Um, Okay, uh, so you're the industrial organiser for Socialist Alternative. what does that mean?
1: It means I'm the person that gets the phone call for when people are saying, "Oh, I've half unionized my place and I'm being hauled into a meeting. What should I do?" And the answer is, "Oh, maybe you should called me or someone else a month ago and yeah. strategized a bit." Um, so, yeah, there's a bit of that. Basically, it's a, we've got a pretty random selection of um, workers in all sorts of industries, ranging from um, you know small shops through to railway networks. Construction sites, hospitals, uh, universities, obviously schools, you name it. So my job is basically working with our individual members, wherever they happen to be, to work out how we can build a stronger union in that place, and then how we can build a stronger left and a stronger socialist presence within that union movement. So it's basically the greatest job that I could ever imagine having. It's just radical politics at the point of production. What do you got? You know, every day. It's just, it's great. Yeah.
0: So, when did you first become a kind of organised socialist? I don't mean to give away your age here or anything,
1: but I'm pretty old. <laughs> I'm fifty-three now. Yeah. Um, well, I was, of course, I, I, I was first accused of being a socialist when <laughs> I was, because uh, I was involved in organising high school walkouts back in the eighties, um, when the big issues were uranium mining, US bases, the threat of nuclear war, and so on, and. Um, After a speech at a particular rally about uh, uranium mining and how the workers didn't benefit, and you know, companies paid almost no royalties and so on, and the only people that benefited were these giant corporations, this woman came up and said, "What are you telling us all that socialist shit for?" Which point I thought I'd better check out this socialist shit. I might be a socialist, and (laughs) over the years, well, yeah, and you know, being the. Earnest young man that I was, I checked it out pretty thoroughly and it made a bunch of sense. In and, the
0: library, presumably. <laughs>
1: yeah, and then you start to meet socialists and they sell you different sorts of socialist newspapers and, you know, want to have arguments and discussions. And after a few years, actually, I was a, I was, a, yeah, it took, took a few years to win me around until I finally um, was actually at a conference in 1991 and I remember Tom Bramble doing a talk about the industrial struggle in Australia and. He was talking about at the uh, in the mid-70s, all of a sudden you had this innovation of 24-hour picket lines because before that, no one scabbed. Why would mm-hmm. you scab? Like, it's full employment. You don't like it. Just go and work somewhere else. All of a sudden you had this these scabs that you had to stop. And I, I remember at that moment something clicked into place about, ah, the memory of the working class, like actually trying to learn some, you know, look at patterns in the class struggle, try to learn some lessons from that, and try to apply that in the um, the struggles of today. Um, and that was the point I thought, God damn, they've got me entirely. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I can yeah. see
0: the point of being in an organisation. Yeah,
1: for... that's right. Yeah.
0: And so, uh, do you remember some of the early kind of basic socialist points that you learnt about unions in particular? Was there stuff that surprised you back then, or made well, you think about it differently?
1: See like I, I grew up in Canberra in the 1980s. So, the first union that I ever had much to do with was the Builders Labourers Federation. Because at that time, in the mid 80s, they were building uh, what today is Parliament House, like the new Parliament House yeah. building, which is $1.2 billion worth of construction work, which is a lot of construction work even today, let alone in the 1980s. It was just this massive site. So, the Builders Labourers Federation was the dominant, um, you know, it's all concrete construction. So, they were the, you know, one of the the dominant union really on that site. And therefore, in the Camper Trades and Labour Council, um, and so I, you know, I was a, a, you know, high school hippie, basically organizing walkouts about, you know, nuclear power and nuclear waste and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and coming across the BLF was just really impressive. T- two stories: one was uh, obviously this is before the apartheid regime fell in South Africa. Mm. And Canberra being the place where the racist apartheid regime had its uh, embassy, um, there was, I think it was 1985, for a full year, there was a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week picket of the South African embassy endorsed by the Canberra Trades and Labor Council. And so that was one of my early political, political experiences, is just sitting in a folding chair in the Canberra yeah. sunshine, and some, you know, plumber or delivery person would rock up and you'd say, oh, sorry, mate, Trades and Labor Council picket line, and they'd go, oh, sweet, okay, and turn around <laughs> and go away. I just thought it was just normal. Then the the BLF acquired a, uh, a rather large site shed from the new Parliament House site and installed that on the vacant land opposite the of South African Embassy, and it wired it to the grid and did it all up, and that was the South African Liberation Centre putting out, you know, a message contrary to the, the racist lies coming out of the embassy. Um, so that, to me, was a pretty clear demonstration of just what unions can do when they have a bit of strength. Um, also, there were some people I knew who were involved in a political squat in Canberra on North Point Avenue there, the main drag into Canberra. There was a big housing crisis, and they squatted in this house and said, we're going to stay here. Um, and it was an empty house, we're going to stay here until every single person on the public housing waiting list is uh, housed. And, you know, the government tried concessions, look, we'll give you houses, we'll give you really nice houses. No, it's not about us, we're going to sit here until 10,000 people have been housed. Eventually the developers got some goons to come in, threw the squatters and the, all of their belongings out of the house, it started smashing up the house, smashed up the, the dunnies, the thrones, yeah. pulled out the gas appliances, all of this sort of stuff, tried to make it unlivable. Someone from the squatters that had some contact with the Builders Laborers Federation uh, made a phone call and within an hour, there were 400 builders, laborers and plumbers walking up, marching up Northbourne Avenue from the new Parliament House site, throwing the thugs out on their ear and saying, "Hmm, okay, well, we'd better start fixing this joint up. Where can we get some thrones and other appliances? Hmm, okay. I think we know a construction site (laughs) where we can locate some stuff. So... For me, that was that was it, really. Yep. Just the sort of, um, you know, when you marry radical, some sort of radical politics, you know, with real working class power at the point of production, uh, what's possible? And that's really what got me hooked, I suppose.
0: And like that kind of um, radical social justice that is, you know, we throw around this, well, I mean, it's a useful term to talk about social justice, but it's sort of like con- the connection between... Those kind of questions like homelessness and racism and so on that the union movement historically has always been a part of, I think, is often kind of now much more rhetorical than it is physical and practical like that story kind of demonstrates, which, mean, which is pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that was built on real industrial strength, yeah. which, you know, unfortunately... When you know no one's going to stop you. That's, uh, yeah, yeah. You, you know, back then, you know, you would not mess with the BLF in Canberra. Like, yeah. yeah, just industrially, it would be out of the question.
0: Our across the world. So, let's jump into the state of the unions today. Because, um, I mean, your piece in Red Flag is about the crisis that's pretty obvious, and one of the things that kind of sparked me into thinking about having this discussion on the show was um, the recent events in, in Canberra in Parliament in that building that the BLF built um, about the so-called enduring Integrity Bill and the kind of narrow escape that was getting the crossbench to um, vote down or it was a tied vote so the bill was dropped. And um, my experience of that process was Getting text messages from the ACTU saying, "Please call Pauline Hanson's office. Please call um, Jackie Lambie, and so on." And I was like, "What is going on? Is this, is this the mm. union movement now? Like robotext?" It is. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Not one protest. Not one street protest against this. Like, and for listeners that don't know, the ensuring is. It's, you know, George Orwell would be Euphemism, rolling in his yeah. grave. The so-called Ensuring Integrity Bill. This allows, quote-unquote, any person with sufficient interest. So it could be a disgruntled member of a union. It could be someone who's been allegedly wronged by a union. Anyone with sufficient interest can apply to deregister a union. And then it's up to the federal court and the Registered Organisations Commission, but basically the federal court, whether they want to deregister a union or a branch of it. They can dismiss particular officers of a union. And one of the most sinister things um, under this legislation would be that uh, the federal court can appoint an administrator which can, again, quote-unquote, exercise any power or function of the union. So that administrator appointed by the federal court could sell union property, could start an industrial dispute or finish an industrial dispute, could call a meeting or cancel a meeting, could attend any single meeting, a delegates meeting worksite meetings or whatever. Um, Yeah, could sell property, sack staff, you name it. Um, So it's really the sort of control over over the trade union movement that has previously only been known in dictatorships. Mm. And we came within the narrowest possible margin, like zero votes, like Mm. it was a tied vote, as you mentioned, which meant that it went down to defeat for now. And to get that result... The union movement was basically reduced to begging from out-and-out racists like Pauline Hanson. People have been, um, you know, peddling racist lies for more than 20 years for entire entire political career, and that's what the trade union movement has come to. Now we know that the um, like both Pauline Hanson and Jackie Lambie have um, sort of flip-flopped on all sorts of issues in the past. The Ensuring Integrity Bill has now been reintroduced Mm, into Parliament, won't go anywhere for the Christmas break and so on. They've already included amendments uh, from Jackie Lambie. So we're looking at what I describe in the article as basically an existential threat to unions as independent organisations of the working class. And yet not one rally, not one strike, not one discussion of what are we going to do when the first administrator is appointed? like there's just zero. So that if you want the state of our union movement on a postcard like um and you know it's a pretty bleak picture
0: and that kind of comes off the back of the whole change the rules campaign um leading up to the federal election which kind of dissolved into as every, as we all said that it would into a vote labor if you want to change the rules which was an acknowledgement at least that you know the Australian industrial relations system the framework of laws that we have in this country are some of the most draconian anti-union laws anywhere in the world. I mean, Mm. I think someone from the Philippines would say, you know, like it's easier to go on strike there than it is to go on strike in Australia. So there's this acknowledgement that the rules are broken, that, you know, that they need to be changed and then we have this campaign leading up to the election that turns into, a, you know, a, a lobbying kind of campaign and then you've got this now... God knows what backroom deals were done with Jackie Lambie yeah. or Pauline Hanson, what what has been offered to them to mm. vote this way this time. And then, you know, they can just bargain that against the Liberal Party and get something better mm. for Tasmania or whatever Jackie Lambie thinks yeah. that she's doing. So, you know, it's it's not a surprise that this has been but the approach of the unions to this question, but it is deeply it's, it's still a troubling. disgrace. Yeah.
1: It's an absolute disgrace. And like the change of rules campaign, like yes it pointed out that we have some of the worst industrial rules in, in the world. One of the things that they didn't point out was that these are actually Labor's rules. And so that was one of the big elephants in the room at the several delegates meetings that were held um, was there was just no criticism whatsoever of the Labor Party. It's just you know raise the issue, get Labor in change the rules. Like the, the connection between those getting Labor in and the rules actually changing is a pretty moot point, given that these were labour's rules in the first place. Um, the the internal review... like the positive thing about changing rules was getting people on the street um, and, you know, showing that if the union movement even gives a little bit of a call, tens of thousands in Melbourne, you know... Well, you know, yeah, tens and tens of thousands of people um, took to the streets. But the tragedy of it was that it was entirely on this pro-Labour uncritical pro-Labour basis um, and that it didn't have any sort of whiff of defiance of, you know, we're going to have to continue this struggle after the election, um, especially in the Liber- Liberals win, but no matter who wins. And in the result, like, the, I mean, none of the seats that were targeted by Change the Rules um, or, you know, that were the high priority targets were won, that the whole thing was a failure. One of the most uh, worrying things for me, I reckon, was the response, like, usually... You know, like if you're working on a major project and it totally fails, well, okay. You reflect. You reflect. You have a big debate. You open things up. What the hell went wrong? The ACTU had an internal review, which of course leaked eventually to the media, which said no one outside the um, circle of union officials and activists understood what change the rules meant. Like it just did not cut through. And I think partly that's a reflection of the incredibly low level of struggle you know unless you're up against these yeah, laws you, wouldn't you know, know they existed. you wouldn't know but you know like even within these industrial laws many unions don't ballot for strike action most unions don't have an active organizing drive and so on so for most union members it's just, oh, okay i guess the union you know rules i guess they're no good but there's all these other issues it just gets lost in the noise um so when this was raised with the ACTU the the statement from the ACTU was um Basically, the change of rules represented wonderful progress, mm. and so I say in the article, too much more wonderful progress like this, and we're <laughs> finished, really going to yeah. be in trouble. Yeah,
0: because I mean, how much did it cost?
1: Twenty. Well, the figure that I saw in the Guardian it was twenty-five million bucks. Like the ACtu yeah. was a portion of that, and then individual unions sort of chucked in as well. Yeah, you can hire a lot of organisers, like oh, actual goodness. people mm. who get out and who organise workers. Yeah, for that sort of yeah. money, but that's not their orientation. Of our union movement, which is yeah. what gets us here, I suppose. Mm.
0: So, Tom Bramble, who you mentioned earlier as giving a talk on unions and labour struggle back in the 90s, has been writing about unions for a very long time. You know, he's a socialist academic and historian of the union movement um, in Australia. He wrote an, an article for the Marxist Left Review, which is um, a journal that I also highly recommend people looking up in 2017 and he he describes it as the biggest crisis ever of the trade union movement in Australia. So there's about 15% of workers, which I think is still roughly the same, 15% of all workers who are in unions. And when you look at the levels of industrial activity, so that means the amount of time basically that workers spend um, fighting around anything. So that can be... um, Changes to the nature of your work or it can be kind of strike action or stoppages. There's a whole lot of things that can be called industrial activity. But what we're looking at primarily are some of the lowest strike rates um, ever. And one of the statistics that Tom draws out is that if you compare the last decade, so I guess 2007 to 17, with the 1970s, you've got a 97% less industrial action than in that decade. I mean, that is saying something.
1: Yeah, that's crazy, those sort of statistics um, and paint an accurate and incredibly bleak picture of where we're at as a movement. Um, like the, the figure on union membership, 15% actually overstates it because mm. you've got you know some very large public sector workforces, especially teachers and nurses. Nurses union is one of the ones that has been growing as they organise their way into aged care and other areas. Um, but, um, so, if you take out the public sector, uh union membership in the private sector is under ten percent um, so yeah, we're really bumping along the bottom
0: so then the obvious question is oh, how how do we end up in this situation
1: well I think the 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 answer has to revolve around politics um the like previous crises in Australian union movements, you talk about the 1890s when, you know, there was a series of massive industrial disputes. Unions were defeated in that. There was a Great Depression on top of that. Um, you know, union numbers in New South Wales or the number of unions, union members affiliated to the Trades and Labour Council fell by 99%, you know, from the peak in the late 1880s to the, the bottom of the pit in 1894. So it's a pretty deep crisis. The, you know, unions were pretty much overwhelmed in the, uh, late 20s um, again unions were shackled for a generation you know after world war ii by the penal powers in all of those cases though there was a higher level of industrial action going into the defeat one of the most demoralizing things i think for people is to lose without a fight mm. and overwhelmingly that's what's happened in australia since the 1980s so pride of place in any explanation for Um, where we've ended up as union movement um, has to go to the Accord, the Prices and Income Accord, which was sold to us by... um, It was only the left. It was only the Communist Party, you know, with its very reformist politics by that stage that could actually sell a program of class collaboration as thorough as the Accord to, you know, the most militant sections of the Australian working class. And and they, they did that the result of that, like the, the guts of the Accord for people don't know, is basically, oh, let's stop all of this strike nonsense. Let's get union officials, you know, I'll just get my shiny black shoes under the negotiating table and, um, you know, we'll have less industrial action, greater productivity, the national pie will grow and everyone will be better off. And that's turned out to be entirely bullshit. So and that the, was the Labor the, government, that, yeah. The, sorry, yeah. The, important to say. If you just looked at the level of, of wages in the 70s into the 80s, you'd think, oh, they had this really radical government in the late 70s, you know? And then there was this really conservative government that came in in 1983 and wages started to fall. In fact, it's the other way around because the unions were still fighting in the late 70s and 80s. It was only when Labor came in and they had the accord. So, I mean, you can sort of recount the historical narrative, but at the core of that is the, the fact that the reformist forces were incredibly well organised um, and used every bit of their left credibility to sell this program of class collaboration to Australian workers. Um, like you know, it's one thing to keep up wages and conditions um, as a union in conditions of boom after World War Two. Um, all of a sudden, from 1975, your gains don't come quite so easily, and that's when you really. You know, that's when the political weakness and the sectional weakness of you know, the very sectional sort of strength that Australia's workers had at that time starts to get found out. The, the, the revolutionary left you know, is rebuilding at that time, but it's just too weak to really pose um, a credible alternative across the working class to the politics of the Accord. Um, which is one thing that Liz Ross will actually be talking about at this uh, at next year's Marxism conference. She's launching a book on um, struggles under the accord. There's a lot of very heroic groups of workers that went out for long periods of time saying, no, nah, we're going to yeah. hang on to our conditions and so on, um, but they were isolated. Stuff the
0: accord, I think, was the motto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, but they were isolated um, by the rest of the trade union movement, which was wedded to this program of class collaboration, and smashed one by one and... So that's that's the 80s, then the 90s comes along, the politics of the trade union movement hasn't changed, but, you know, the ruling class has lost its fear of the trade unions and just starts an offensive, which basically hasn't stopped till till now. The of the revolution has been
0: So what happened to the layer of union militants and people who are kind of famous in some of the upturns or the the times when struggle has been much more real and militant and big like where are those people now is that a question of politics as well would you argue or is it that there's a different kind of composition of the union leadership than they used to be
1: the like why there aren't so many militants yeah. around anymore Hmm, i reckon that's a really important question like part of it if you, if you look at how Unions have revived, like the last great revival of Australia's unions, you know, was um, a rank and file revolt, took advantage of a split in the bureaucracy and the result was the Clary O'Shea general strike in 1969, That a rolling general strike around Australia that freed the leader of the Tramways Union in Victoria, Clary O'Shea. Um, now, Clary O'Shea was a Maoist um, there were, At that time, what, were we up to three different communist parties in Australia at that time? Each of them with some sort of implantation in the working class Each of them actually pretty rotten Stalinist politics But they still carried something And the, the members, the people that they organised The workers that they organised Still carried something of a you know, a basic you know, Our interests are irreconcilable with the bosses And you've got to organise and fight Now, the fact that that left has either, um, you know, been one to class collaboration in the case of the Communist Party or, you know, um, disappeared, you know, with the Stalinist regimes um, in the case of the pro-Russia Communist Party or, you know, just got totally confused and demoralized through the 70s and 80s by the twists and turns of um, the Chinese Communist Party. Like the the political foundations of that left have disintegrated Mm. um, and... As I mentioned, you know, like the 70s is a period where you've got the growth of small revolutionary groups, but we just, you know, didn't have then and still don't have the implantation that we need to to really mount a challenge.
0: Yeah. Okay. I mean, we,
1: sorry, I mean, we do mount a challenge all uh, the time, we, every we tr- day in a series of workplaces, but <laughs> yeah. across the class, you know, yeah, like yeah. the revolutionary left is tiny, which is why one of the arguments I making in the article is a, a revival... Any revival of the trade union movement historically has always been absolutely intertwined with a revival of radical left forces. Um, And that's the case reviving from the 1890s. It was a syndicalist. It was revolutionary unionists like Tom Mann, you know, famously, industrial workers of the world famously, and thousands of much less famous um, radicals who... Um, you know, had a vision of a different society and that's what powered their Mm. their union work, you know. Same in the 30s, it was a communist party. You can make all sorts of very valid criticisms of their terrible politics, but they believed that they were fighting for a better world and that's what meant that they would make those sacrifices and come up, you know, come up against the the existing trade union leaders and push them aside because they had their own self-confidence in a different brand of politics. And same in the late 60s, that whole spirit of revolt from the... um, you know, from the movement of resistance against the brutal war in Vietnam that Australia and the US were fighting at that time, that went all through the union movement. And a whole lot of radicals came out of that movement and into the trade unions and turned previously quite staid unions into fighting forces. Mm. I mean, the teachers' union here in Victoria was, is one of the great examples of that. So I find it hard to imagine a union revival across the board until we've got that sort of political revival happening. Which is anyway, which is not to say like because a lot of people are doing you know really decent union work, um, yeah.
0: so let's talk about some of the glimmers of mm. hope and light in amongst all of this um bleakness, uh, so in terms of organizing, I mean that's one of the one of the big debates always in the union movement has been, well, on what basis do you organize, how do you recruit, where are the best places to do organizing? who are the best kinds of workers to, you know, create into, turn into activists, who are going to be the next generation of the kind of, the leaders of the fight back, Um, where are we going to get some dues money from, or whatever the considerations are for um, union leaderships, and for rank and file union members, about how do you organise. And so, Looking around today, I mean, one of the examples and we've um, had people talk about this as well at at previous Marxism conferences is the organising that's being done around migrant farm workers by the National Union of Workers, the NUW. Some pretty extraordinary stuff when you think about the excuses that are made by other unions around why you can't recruit or organise particular groups of people. People on precarious job contracts, people in insecure work, people who maybe have dodgy or, you know, insecure um, visa situations. All of these things are generally the reasons why people in union leadership positions say, well, that's, you know, it's just impossible, throw up their hands and give up. But in this case, it seems to have been like a pretty amazing demonstration of how you can organize people in those situations Mm. and you can win through organizing them
1: yeah no i thoroughly agree with that and it's just like it's uh i mean every time i hear um you know the farm workers and the farm worker organizers speak like at the same time i'm absolutely inspired by as you say people on dodgy visas or no visas or whatever actually finding some industrial strength um and you know, winning minimum wages, winning respect on the job, winning health and safety, winning a whole bunch of things which, you know, should be the bread and butter of every union in the country. Um, and so, so yes, it's an inspiring story. It also shines a light, though, on, well, hell, like if the National Union of Workers is capable of doing this, you know, a large-scale organising project, which has been a hell of a lot of hard work, you know, over a series of years, but it's getting some results. If I bet cap- it
0: didn't cost $25 million. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i wonder about that but yeah where are the other organizing uh programs yeah. like you know okay there's a little bit here and a little bit there it's nice that the you know the etu have organized their way into the uh, lift industry um you know properly over the last couple of years um there's bits and pieces you know nice wind for the maritime union um, in western australia on one of the gas fields up off the northern territory um but you know, that's coming off a very low base. And with like more than 90% of private sector workers not in a union, every single union should have multiple high-profile, well-resourced organising uh, campaigns. It's just a fact. Since the 19... Well, I mean, if you get back into history, a lot of unions have been able to get away without organising for a heck of a long time because they're propped up by different laws or institutional arrangements. They're being systematically kicked away now. Um, and then you had that whole period of the 1980s where organising and striking and using your industrial power wasn't...
0: Just ground to a halt.
1: Well, ground to a halt, and the people that did still do it were systematically isolated and smashed. So Mm. talk about
2: extinguishing the memory of the class. Um, Jerem mentioned the migrant farm workers that the NUW have been organising. and If if I'm allowed, I just wanted to share a quick story. Uh, I was lucky enough about two years ago to actually go out one night with one of the NUW organisers... Uh, was doing sort of door to door, uh, recruitment for the farm workers team. Um, and it was just, it was like the tales you hear of old, old style union organizing, literally under the cloak of darkness, Mm. you know, knocking on doors in the far flung kind of Southeastern suburbs. And there's no porch light on the door. Like there's no, no light outside the house, you know, and, and you knock on the door, it's after dark and the door opens like an inch and this voice is like, who's that? because only two people can knock on the door after dark. It's either the union organizer or immigration. You know what I mean? And and you have to try to say, oh, I'm, you know, the organizer's like, oh, I'm a friend of such and such and they've given me your address and I want to come in to speak to you about things. You have to sort of talk your way into the house in the first place and then try to recruit all the people in the house because all the farm workers were living in these houses that were owned by the farm employers. Um, We got tailed. This guy followed us in a car uh, that night as we're going around. The organiser who I was with Just trying to intimidate Yeah, he said, oh, yeah, that's the the farm owners send these guys out, the thugs to follow us around and intimidate us. You know, it really is that kind of... So what Jeremy says about hard work, you know, that's it. So it's not even just the $25 million figure and the hard work in terms of long hours. It's the hard work in terms of, you know, that sort of preparedness, to the willingness to go and do that sort of work to Mm. actually build the union. But the other important lesson about that too is that uh, one of the things that's always struck me with the farm workers is not just the effort of those organisers, but the... um, the initiative and willingness to, to to take action by those workers themselves because a lot of the times you hear these stories from those farm workers about it's not just so much that the organizer went in and started a fight or something but that there was already some fight brewing you know there's these i met this woman one of the women farm workers is a um this cambodian woman who led you know essentially unprotected you know unlawful industrial action let her sit down in the tea room to get to win their lunch breaks back because the farm owner had said no more lunch breaks. So she was like, Well fuck you, we're just gonna sit in the tea room all lunch and, and have our own fucking lunch break. You know, so there's I think for those of us who, you know, are trying to like rebuild the traditions of militant unionism and, and radical politics, they're the two lessons that hard work organizing, but also that we can take conf- you know, we can take confidence in the fact that there are still, you know, workers out there who have the initiative to fight. Yeah. Because um, like a, a couple of chats I've had
1: with um, farm workers and organisers, and it's been pointed out to me, like a lot of these people come from countries where like a lot of these people have stood up to dictatorships, or you know stood up for workers' rights in a dictatorship before. Once they know that there's a bit of backing around and the basics of organisation, um, you know they know what to do. Um, but yeah, like I'd agree with what you said, Liam. Like the, the like I think it's really important to emphasise that the basics haven't changed. The working class is still there. It's not that they are, or that we are, too precarious or disinterested or young or old or migrant or... Like, all of the excuses which are given for why the union movement can't organise are exactly that, excuses. Um, You know, wherever... And it's not, you know, every single organising attempt, you know, works 100 miles an hour, but where there's people to put the serious effort in... Um, And the stories from our own members in Socialist Alternative, you know, being able to, you know, do bits and pieces here and there and on occasion actually do some serious organising where there's some space to do it. Um, You know, the basics still work. Um, The workers still have the power. It's just a matter of a political perspective that puts that at its centre and then the resources to actually do that at scale.
0: I mean, the other obvious thing that if you just look at all of the evidence of history, I mean... People seem to do this now. We'll go, oh, social science and looking at history and stats, thinking about XR. But, um, Mm. you know, every time that there is actually a genuine fight that happens, that people organise and they take industrial action, the union recruits hundreds, sometimes thousands of new members because people see the point of being in a union. And even if you only win a small victory or even if you just stand up for yourself – the idea that the union is doing something and that the union is not just the organisers, it's actually the union is us, it's the members of the union mm. and we c- we have some power. That's when you build, that's when you r- recruit new people and so this idea of like, you know, ringing, you know, the, the people who sit around having workshops and focus groups and discussions about how are we going to sign up people, what do we need to offer them as if some kind of free fridge magnet or discount health insurance or something whatever is going to be the way to recruit people when the answer is staring you in the face from all of the evidence from history that when you fight when you struggle hmm. people join the union
1: yeah and i reckon it's important to, to say that's still possible to do i mean it's sort of flows from what we said that's still possible to do even under these broken industrial laws yeah there's a, a hell of a lot of organizing that can go on and should go on an industrial action that can be taken even despite our broken laws um and very often, you know, it's a, partly it's a question of low expectations, um, and partly it's a question of well, yeah, political focus and where the unions put their resources. Um.
0: So it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. There's a series of challenges for us as socialists, I guess, to, to, um, to begin to put into place, you know, a, a strategy or an approach. Or take the first step, as you often like to talk about, Jeremy. is where's your next step coming from, or which direction is it going in, and who might be taking it with you? But, you know, we still make the argument that this is a central part of being a socialist. Mm. I mean, in the face of the biggest crisis of unions in Australian history, yeah. why are we still bothering?
1: Because the basics still work, and because we've got nothing else. And, uh, like, you know, I've always been a bit of a history freak, I suppose, and... Like, back in the 1920s in the US, there was no shortage of people saying, "Ah, oh, that's it, the day of the union's over. You know, we used to have this really strong craft organisation, but now, you know, it's the mass production worker. They come from all four corners of the globe. Oh all these oh my machines. God. Yeah, they're all these machines. We, it's just impossible to organise until a new generation of radicals came along. Well, actually drawing on some of the lessons of the IWW, you know applied that in in a new way and in a new environment and at massive scale in the late 30s and you had the rebirth of unionism in the united states um you know there's there's no shortage around the world of stories like that um and it's well yeah so yeah and the examples that we've given the basics still work and it's also a fact that we just what the hell else have we got like the working class is still They can outsource us, right-size us, offshore us, you know, automate a whole chunk of us, but they actually do still need our labour and, you know, the fundamentals of that haven't changed. Um, Mm. Yeah, so that and a bit of history is what keeps me going. Mm.
0: And um, I wonder if we could just end with uh, me asking both of you to give just a little story of one of the high points of being a unionist, you know, being not an organiser but a rank-and-file union member what that's looked like, what's that felt like, and what kind of things are possible, have been possible, that we can hopefully inspire people to recreate. Liam looks ready with this story.
2: I know you've got a lot, Liam. People who know me know the story I'm going to tell because I've been telling it for nine years now. It was nine years ago.
0: I'm sure there's people who haven't heard it.
2: (laughs) Maybe. Uh, I've worked at RMIT University for a long time. I've been a union delegate there since 2004. Um, And in about uh, 2010... uh, the faculty that I work in, like the school that I work in, uh, which has about, about 200 employees and for all intents, it's got it the agreement covers everyone at the university, but for all intents and purposes that that school is its own kind of workplace as its own manager and whatever, you know, and, uh, this senior manager, um, it's a long story too long to squeeze in at the end of this, but we had a mass rebellion a mass uprising, uh, that culminated in a meeting of over a hundred, uh, workers from that faculty, um, uh, basically demanding that this manager be sacked uh, and he was sacked one of the is- he was a racist sexist violent bully uh, but one of the um, one of the kind of moments in that whole campaign that went on for a few months uh, one of the things that this pernicious bastard had done was that he had decided that the budget couldn't cover the existence of a water cooler for staff so he took our fucking water cooler away we tried to uh, oh my but God. Then after after we had our mass uprising and got him sacked the water cooler was still there. So for a few days, we had a little kind of makeshift paper uh, plaque on the water cooler that was uh, named after him. It was the Memorial Water Cooler. Yeah, he was gone. The water cooler was still there. If you too, listener, want a water cooler in your uh,
0: workplace, join your union. Yeah. Is that the moral of the story there, Liam? No, not <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> quite, but... <laughs> but sometimes it can be the really small know. things, eh? And yeah. it's, the you slip know. mat that you need for help, you know, the little things that... Just give you a bit of Mm. dignity back at work.
1: Dignity is a word that I was going to say. Like that water cooler represents Mm. a lot more than just, you know, the convenience of having a sip of cool water Mm. when you want it. It's like, you know, no. You do not have the right to just boss me and bully me and take away shit that I want and need, you know, and to be able to win against all of that. It's just, um, yeah, it's pretty decent. I'll go with two stories if I can. Mm. One one big one, one smaller one. I mean, and the big one was... um, uh twenty years ago now at the maritime union dispute in nineteen ninety eight. Um where you know, listeners might be familiar with the story of the mass blockades down at um God, was it Appleton Dock? Down at um
0: Was it Appleton? Web doc, no. Web,
1: no, jeez, I'm getting me docs mixed up. Ugh, down on shame. The me- <laughs> down shame on, on all the of us. Terrible. <laughs> down on the Melbourne docks, someone will phone up and correct us. Um, down on the Melbourne docks, the, the word had gone out. There was a whole bunch of cops going down there to break this picket line of the Maritime Union, one of John Howard's big union-busting exercises. Um, so, you know, there was a mass picket. I, I was there all night. You could just see hundreds, I don't know, a thousand, thousands of cops. Helicopters overhead, all the rest of it. You know, it's just this sort of eyeball-to-eyeball thing all night. And then at about 6.30 in the morning, uh, uh, Martin Kingham from the construction union gets up and says, "Okay, unionised workers are starting all through the CBD construction sites as we speak. Every single one of them is being told the job is shut today. You will be marching down to the Melbourne docks to uh, defend the picket. And seeing in the morning light thousands of Mm -hmm. construction workers wearing their hard hats come around row after row of them behind the cops and for the cops to have to beg to be let out of that situation it's one of those occasions where it's not just rhetoric to say we are the power like United Workers actually were the power on that day and it's one thing to read it and to um, yeah to read it and see a movie about it hear about it whatever but to actually be there at that point like you know it's moments like that that help to keep me going And then a smaller one, a construction site I worked on, where, um, you know, the company was going under, it was just a shitty job, we were trying to do really difficult stuff, but there was just this systematic bullying of the workers going on, partly because the company was going under, everyone was concerned about their job, not wanting to rock the boat too much. Um, We had something like 20, there's 130 people daily on that construction site, in a single month we had 20 people injured badly enough to go to first aid. And usually if you just whack yourself with a hammer or whatever, it's like, oh, God damn, you know, suck your thumb carry for a bit yeah. and carry on. Like, you know, so that's a high rate of injury. We had an insurrection on that <laughs> on that site where, like, a bunch of us basically called the manager on it in this, uh, called the site foreman on it in this, um, uh, you know, pre-start meeting, which usually go for five minutes of the guy hectoring us to, look, there's all these injuries, just work safe. And we called him on it about his push, push. And you say to us here, work safe. And then out there, it's just push, push, push. Anyway, developed into this whole sort of like raging thing. The meeting went for about an hour. But because we'd stood up to him, it just it was remarkable that people got their self-confidence back. The next month, we had one injury. And that was right at the start of the month, actually, mm. just the day before the, uh, the insurrection. And people walking around with their heads up, refusing to be bullied, um, having this impromptu work to rule, like all of the stupid shit that management ask us to do. Well, we actually did it without asking questions, just mm-hmm. for a few days, which just sent the, you know, well, you told us just to move the um, the loading dock up to the next level, so we did it. You didn't ask us to remove the forklift from this level. So, <laughs> well, now we have to waste half a day putting the loading dock back in and moving Oh, look, whatever you want, you know. It was that sort of thing. But... Like, it wasn't so much the chaos on the job. It was, like, every single worker walking around with their heads up. And I've been involved in a lot of situations, strikes on picket lines and, you know, warehouses and whatever. And to me, that's it. Like, seeing working-class people walking around like they own Mm. the joint. And I will take that as a very small deposit on the sort of society that we're fighting for. Where working-class people can not just stuff up the boss for a couple of days and not just win a water cooler or some dignity at work... But actually, control the whole thing, mm. you know, and just it's that glimmer of what we look like when we're standing together and doing that um, that you know I'll never get sick of. Mm.
0: Well, that's a beautiful ending, I think, to the show. Thank you so much, Jerem, for coming. Thanks for joining Rose, and us. Thanks for having me back. Sure. Um, and if you do have feedback or you want to tell us the name of the doc or whatever <laughs> we have a uh, an email address that you can write into east swanson Christ. Need everyone to, knows that yeah, yeah. on any other topic <laughs> red flag radio podcast at gmail.com we'd love your feedback and obviously keep um rating and reviewing us on itunes and any other platforms that you listen to this podcast uh, we appreciate the feedback and your ongoing support and tune in next time Um, And if you don't fight, you lose.